Good morning to you. We will finish up the back this morning, Lord willing. We have looked at Habakkuk's roaring in chapter 1, his crying out to God, his um, confusion, distress. We see his rebuke in chapter 2, the reminder not to trust in yourself, your own wisdom, or to walk in human pride, but to simply humble yourself in faith to God. And then in chapter 3, we see Habakkuk's resolve. And this is a prayer and a psalm. It's meant to be sung. We'll talk a little bit about that. It's meant to be sung, and it is uh, a psalm or a prayer of praise to God for all that he's done. It is founded, it is written upon the basis of what we have read in chapter 2. Chapter 3 would not be possible had Habakkuk not been reminded of chapter 2, verse 4, and had chosen to rest in that reality. So let's open with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for this book and the message of it, Lord that we are to live by faith, to walk by faith. And we thank you for the resolve that we see here in chapter 3 with a very difficult challenge, but by the Spirit of God, submission to your Spirit. Lord, this could be a reality and can be a reality in our lives. And so we ask that you would help us to humbly apply it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This is our challenge this morning. Easy to say and hard to do, is it not? Resolve to rest in God, no matter what. <laughs> oh, yes, we say that. It is so easy to talk about, but doing that daily. When the hot tea bag is put in the hot water, what comes out? Is it a tasty flavor or is it something putrefying? Is it a mixture of both? Uh, you know, there's always things that God wants to purify from our lives and things that He wants to get rid of. And so he will constantly bring trials into our lives to conform us more into the image of him, to encourage more dependence on him daily, so that we can actually uh, live in this reality that we see here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the actual outline this morning. It's very simple. Uh, There it is. That's all there is to it. I am going to really just go down through this prayer and explain it as we go and wrap it up at the very end with a challenge for all of us from mainly verses 17 and 18. And uh, I'll try to remember to click this as we go. But in verses 1 through 15, we see the vision of God's glory. And then in verses 17 through 19, we see the victory of the redeemed. And those are the two main sections. He says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shigionot. This is the a type of music a type of meter to which this prayer or this psalm would have been sung. Uh, Some say it was a faster rhythm with certain pauses of emphasis. I don't know. No one really knows for certain what shigionot means. Uh, We see another word akin to it in Psalm 7, if you turn there. And certainly the psalms were meant to be sung and were sung in the temple and were sung in probably Jewish homes. But there, David gives us a word akin to what we've just read, Shigion of David. Again, probably a type of meter, a type of song, a type of tune to which this prayer would have been sung. We see, first of all, a plea of mercy. Habakkuk says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy. God, give us that balance. We realize judgment is coming. 
We realize these things that you've spoken have to be so. We deserve them. But Lord, in the middle of all this, please don't forget that balance. Remember mercy. And truly, we can trust God to always have that perfect balance. What does he mean, revive thy work in the midst of the years? Uh, It's difficult to say exactly to what he's alluding, but I do believe that he is at least in part referring to the reality if the Israelites would repent to whatever land they were taken captive because of their sin, if they would repent and turn to God, God would remember them and God would reestablish them. God would bring them back and God would establish them in their land. We read of that reality in Deuteronomy chapter 30, where the Lord says, no matter where I drive you because of your sin, if in that land you will remember the name of the Lord your God and turn to him, he will bring you back, he will establish you, he will circumcise your heart, and he will be your God and you will be his people. And surely in the end times, that will be the case. When Christ comes back and the remainder of Israel believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be established, they will be founded, And the work in the midst of the years will be revived. Now, as we go down through this prayer, understand that Habakkuk is oftentimes referencing God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage, as well as his deliverance of Israel from the Canaanites as they conquered the Canaanite territory. But understand that it is not limited to that that past look on God's victories, but is also focused on the future victories of the millennial kingdom, the establishment of Israel as a nation under the headship of Christ. So there is what we would call here a dual reference. There's a reference to what God you have done in the past, and we draw strength from that. But there's also a reference to, in that same picture, God, what you will do in the future. It's like these two things go together. The fabric of both of them is weaved together, and it's really inseparable. And you see that a lot in the Old Testament. Isaiah is a classic example of that. Where Isaiah talks not only about the present distress, but the future deliverance pictured within that present distress of Israel. It says, God came from Taman, or the idea of Edom. Taman was a city in Edom. And the Holy One from Mount Paran, the wilderness south of the land of Judah, in which the children of Israel wandered in the days of their uh, affliction. And in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, Moses, in his prayer and in his song for Israel, uses almost the exact same language and talks about God coming from Seir, again, Edom, and the Lord from the wilderness of Paran, exact same language. And so Habakkuk is focusing, Lord, on your past deliverance. I draw strength from what you've done. And I know there's no limit to your power, and we can rest in that. His glory covered the heavens. And the earth was full of his praise. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand. And there was the hiding of his power. We see God's overpowering purity. The idea of horns coming out of his hand could have two different ideas. It could be the idea of light coming out of your fists because of your purity, your power. And God, given an an anthropomorphic picture here of God being a man though we know he's not actually a man, but he is a spirit. The idea of maybe that light coming out of your hands looking like horns, I think perhaps uh, a closer uh, interpretation, one more accurate, would be that this is the idea of strength. And horns in the Old Testament were pictured as strength. Remember the Old Testament prophets on Mount Carmel, the false prophets of Baal. Um, uh, Or no, I'm sorry, wrong reference. Remember the false prophets of of, of Baal who were uh, prophesying to Ahab in 2 Kings 22. When Ahab wanted to go against Ramoth Gilead that the Syrians had conquered. 
And there were 450 prophets of Baal, or 400 false prophets, however many there were there. And there was one prophet named Zedekiah, and he went and he made himself a set of horns of iron. Remember that? And he said, and with these thou shalt push the king of Assyria until thou hast consumed them. And along here comes Micaiah and says just the opposite, of course. Um, but this is the idea, I believe, of power. And it says he had horns coming out of his hand with which he will push and conquer and destroy the enemy. And Babylon will not go free. And Cyrus, uh, the, the Persian emperor, would not go free. And the enemies of Israel today and in the future will not go free. In the end, God will liberate his people. We see disease and death, not in control, but rather in subjection to the Lord God. And some have made reference to the fact that disease and death were often personified uh, as deities in heathen worship. Maybe that is, maybe that isn't true. I don't know exactly entirely. And it could be Habakkuk's attempt to uh, debunk the false deities of death and pestilence and show that they are nothing more than subjects of the true creator. Uh, That may or may not be the case. Regardless, the end result is the same. Before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet. So these things, though they're a threat to you and me physically, ultimately they're not a threat to us because God has everything, including these enemies of ours in subjection. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. Look at Psalm 97, 1 through 5. I want you to see a beautiful parallel to the millennial kingdom here. Psalm 97, 1 through 5. God stood, he divided the nations. It could be in reference to the fact that he'd set the bounds. You think about God dividing the nations at the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, where he confounded the languages, and by those languages he formed the surrounding nations. You think about how God divided the boundaries for the land of Canaan and ultimately decided who wouldn't and who wouldn't, who would and wouldn't inhabit certain areas. You think about how God's going to divide the nations at his return. And as king and lord over all the earth, reigning from Mount Zion, he will decide where the boundaries are and where the nations are and who does and who doesn't, uh, uh, who isn't ruled over and, and so forth and so on. But Psalm 97, 1 through 5, or 1 through 7, the Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. The similarity of the language we've just read. His lightnings enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Boy, that has apocalyptic overtones, doesn't it? Of how when Christ comes back, the hills will melt away and the the mountains will flee. And they'll be crying out to the hills and the mountains cover us and save us from the wrath of the Lamb. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. And so like I said, here we have not only a focus on past deliverance, but also the reality of the future coming of Christ and the ultimate deliverance that God will work in the earth. I saw the tents of Kushan. We're not sure who those people were. Probably a nomadic type of folk in affliction. And the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. We certainly know who they are. The Midianites who encouraged through the council of Balaam to mix with the Israelites and to cause them to commit fornication, to cause them to worship and to eat things offered to idols. And God destroyed the Midianites, 
through uh, Moses and through Joshua, and uh, he uh, revenged himself and the children of Israel upon the Midianites, and I have a feeling that is what is also being referred to here as well. But understand that this could just generally be speaking of the Arab nations and all the nomadic people who have and still are enemies of Israel. And ultimately, in the end as well, those tents, those curtains, the habitations of those enemies will tremble and will be in affliction at the presence of God. He says, was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Poetic language. Was thy wrath against the sea? That thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation. Lord, we saw when you divided the Red Sea. and We saw when the, the chariots of man came through the waters. But ultimately the chariots of God's salvation delivered us from that disaster by covering the enemy with the Red Sea. Lord, we were there when we saw, uh, we were there when we saw you uh, depart or part the Jordan River. And by your chariots of salvation, bring your people through dry shod, and then henceforth immediately deliver Jericho into our hands. Lord, we were there. We saw these things. This is a difficult verse to translate, verse 9. I'll do my best to give the meaning of what I believe it is saying. Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. And this has been translated, uh, some other folks have said, well, it should say arrows, and because it's the same word we see for tribes, it is sometimes translated staff. Um, but I believe really is what he is saying is he is saying this, Lord, you will remember that you have promised to save Israel. And your bow, a picture of your vengeance and of your strength, in the end, you will, as the man of war against all evil, you will remember your oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you will deliver the tribes. Now, I might be totally off base with that, but that's the best I can do. Okay? That's the best I can do. And it does fit the context. As Habakkuk looks into the future, as he considers the present distress, and he remembers God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did God promise Abraham in Genesis 17? What very important event took place in Genesis 17? When God said, Abraham, I want you to take you certain animals and I want you to divide them and I want you to lay them out on the ground. And Abraham did so. And then a whore of darkness fell upon him and a deep sleep. And God, pictured as a burning furnace and a burning lamp, went through those pieces of the animal. I'll try to stay over here, sorry. And so make his job a little easier. And so here you have, normally in the Middle Eastern customs, the animal would be divided and both parties would walk through it uh, in a picture of, look, if we break our promise to each other, let us both be like these divided animals. But God, in his faithfulness, not needing man's faithfulness in order to accomplish what he said would be true in that giving the land to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to his seed forever, he puts Abraham to sleep and he alone walks through the animal because he is not a man that he needs our faithfulness. He is not a man that he should lie or repent. And he gave Abraham, as Paul would say, by two immutable promises. One, that God cannot lie. And by the fact that he went through the animal, picturing that he would not break his promise. Even though it was already impossible for him to do so. And so I believe Habakkuk, looking on these things and drawing upon these things, says, Lord, according to your word, you will save the tribes. Verse 10. The mountains saw thee and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. Again, probably picturing the parting of the Red Sea. 
And then we see a reference, most likely to Joshua chapter 10, verse 12, where Joshua, in need to deliver Israel and, and, and finish off the enemy, says, Lord, I just need a little more time. Stand thou still, sun over Gibeon, and thy moon over the valley of Ayulon. And he says here, the sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Even the cosmic forces that God has put into, uh, into play are at his disposal and at his bidding. And he can do whatsoever he pleases. And Habakkuk, thinking back likely on that re- event of Joshua 10:12, draws on that strength to encourage himself in a day of trouble. Thou didst march through the land in indignation, through the land of Canaan. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. But again, we can see the future reference to this when God will come back. And according to uh, Isaiah 63, who is this that cometh from Edom? with dyed garments from Basra, he that is red in his apparel, mighty to save, glorious in his apparel. Wherefore are thy, thy garments wed, red as one that treadeth in the winepress? And he goes on to say, hey, your garments are red with the blood of your enemies. And there we have a, an unmistakable reference to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ coming back, treading upon his enemies. And we read in Revelation 19, where the Lord Jesus comes back, on his thigh is written, King of kings, Lord of lords, out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. He doesn't have to wield it with his arm. He merely, merely speaks the word, and he slays the wicked, as we read there in the prophets. By the breath of his nostrils shall he slay the wicked. Verse 13, Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people even for the salvation with thine anointed. This, again, a difficult verse to translate. Allow me to do my very best. So thine anointed, a single noun, a singular noun. God calls Cyrus his anointed in Isaiah 45.1. Cyrus is the only heathen king to ever be called God's anointed one. The same term given to Christ. The Hebrew word is Mashiach or from which we get Messiah, and Messiahs in the New Testament. And so here the Lord says, uh, some have said, well, he's referring to Cyrus, that God would use Cyrus to defeat the Babylonians in 539 BC and liberate Israel. That did happen. And maybe there is a near reference to that. But I believe the future and further and completer reference is the obvious one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will come for the salvation of his people with his anointed, who is ultimately and fully embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Okay. And so we can see that again in Revelation 19, where Jesus does come with, 10, 000, with thousands of his saints, robed in white on horses of white because of the righteousness of Christ, not because of their own. And here we have Jesus coming forth at the Battle of Armageddon, speaking a word, destroying the enemies. According to Zechariah 14, the enemy stands... Uh, consumed, It says their eyes will consume away in their holes while they yet stand upon their feet. And their tongues will consume away in their mouths and their flesh will consume away in their bodies. Every sword, the sword of every man's brother will be against his brother. And there will be a great self-destruction, basically. And I believe that's tied to what we see the sea of blood there in Revelation uh, that is described as one being so deep it goes to the horse bridles. Verse 13, Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering or laying bare the foundation unto the neck. Very simply, he just means, Lord, you're going to do a complete and thorough job at destroying the wicked. You're going to utterly annihilate their house. And God destroyed the Babylonians, and he destroyed the Syrians, and he destroyed the Persians, and someday God's going to completely and utterly destroy the house of the Antichrist. Is he not? 
and completely destroy the house of that wicked. And uh, I believe there is a reference to that as well. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Lord, you're going to take care of these people. Even though they're coming against me, and, and Habakkuk could be referring not only to the future Babylonian invasion, but also to even just the very wicked that he dealt with on a daily basis, those who hated the righteous. Uh, those who, at one point in time, Isaiah said, the, the land now calls good evil and evil good, and puts light for darkness and darkness for light. So this could be a general reference to the wicked uh, as a whole. And he says, Lord, you're going to strike through his staves Uh, with his staves the head of his villages you're going to defeat them conquer them thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses through the heap of great waters the egyptians thought they were coming after us but lord actually you were the one there with your horses and your chariots of salvation and you were the one that delivered us and you are the one who will deliver us and though these things are primarily applicable to israel folks there's nothing wrong with you and i as christians drawing strength from the principles of these promises because the end result for us is the same that we will be with Christ forever no matter what happens here on earth when I heard and now Habakkuk and this is the most difficult verse to translate in all of chapter 3 the last part is very hard when I heard my belly trembled he says my lips quivered at the voice rottenness entered into my bones the idea is the very structure of my physical body The very thing that provides me with stability and strength was made weak. And likely he could be speaking of two things here. He could be saying, Lord, I have thought about the the judgment you are going to bring. And, and, And the reality of it has just made me sick to my stomach and weak through fear. Or he could be talking about the reality of reflecting on God and his power and in his presence feeling this way. Who else felt this way? A great prophet that we would hold high in the face of a Christophany by the river Hittichel, or a branch of it, the Tigris, said almost these exact same words. Come on. Daniel, Daniel. good job, Austin. Thank you, sir. He says, my comeliness was turned into me into corruption, and I retained no strength. And he couldn't even stand before that Christophany until an angel from the Lord touched him and gave him strength and stood him upon his feet. And even then, the angel had to tell him words of encouragement and give him strength before he's even able to say anything or receive anything. And that could be what Habakkuk is talking about here. And it could even be just a mixture of both. He says, and I trembled in myself. Now get this, in order that is the idea, that or in order that, this is the result and the purpose, that I might rest in the day of trouble. That is a huge statement of faith. Like, what are you saying? He's literally saying, Lord, I am sick to my stomach. I'm in fear, either it be from the Babylonians or because of your holiness and in your presence. And the result of that is that even in the midst of trouble, even if I die with my nation, I'm going to rest. That is not a result that you are going to arrive at by living in the flesh most of the week and then trying to get all spiritually prayed up on Sunday. Not going to happen. This resolve is only going to happen through a consistent walk with Christ daily and literally applying and allowing him to change the filth and garbage in our lives. 
That's how this gets applied. Because this is a huge resolve. And one that there's no chance of us ever hoping to achieve through the Spirit of God without letting that Spirit fill us on a daily basis. And then he says, and I'm going to make a plug for our King James translation. I'll try not to get all technical with this, but I do want to make a plug for it because they did an amazing job here. He says, when he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. And if you look at a few other English translations, you'll find that this is translated like, uh, they will attack us. And if you look at the Hebrew verb, it's really, that is what I thought it meant. Because it has an ending on it that is a first person plural and it has the idea of us. And the idea is he will attack us. But as you examine it a little closer, you'll find out that the verb is used one other place. And it's used in Genesis Genesis 22 when um, speaking of the sons of Jacob, Gad, whose name means a troop. It says a troop will overcome him, but he will overcome at the last. Okay, A troop will overcome him. And so the idea, it's the exact same verb. And so if you don't look at it real closely, you miss a little mark. It makes it not a first-person plural, but instead a third-person singular ending, in which case you would translate it exactly the way it is here. And so I appreciate a faithful translation where in the dark and hard places, where nobody in the end is 100% sure how to say this, uh, they knew what they were doing, and they had the blessing of God on them. So I praise the Lord for that. I praise the Lord for dependability. And then he says here, so he says, he, when he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. In the end, Lord, when you come against the nation, when you come against the enemy, you will invade them. You will invade and conquer the ones who are attacking us. And then we see Habakkuk's resolve, or the victory of the redeemed, in these last few verses. He says, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. What's he talking about? He's talking about the desolation of war. He's saying, Lord, everything he listed was necessary for Middle Eastern life and wellness. Okay, The vineyards, you had to have those because of an impure water supply. And so you would either drinking the pure blood of the grape or you were mixing alcoholic wine with water to, <clears throat> to kill the bacteria and the things that grew in there because most people had a cistern. He's talking about <clears throat> the fields from which they would get their livelihood, their wheat and their barley and their rye and all the other things that they grew there. He's talking about the fig tree and the fruit trees that were a, a portion of life and sustenance for the people. In various times of the year, the flocks from which they got milk and butter and wool for clothing, the primary uh, uh, material used for the poorer class. You had the, the cattle that were used to till the fields, as well as the cattle that were used for sacrifice and the cattle that were used for just food in general. He says, Lord, even though all of that is taken away, it would be like you saying, Lord, even though my job disappears and even though I lose my car and even though I lose my house and even though I lose my food, my grocery store, and even though I'm kicked out of society and I find myself out in the middle of the woods, that would be the same idea. No idea how you're going to provide for tomorrow or for the next two minutes for that matter. He says, Lord, though all earthly comforts flee, he makes a choice. The certain failure of the world's comforts. Yet I will rejoice 
in Yehovah and Jehovah, in the Lord. And it's actually emphatic, and it is the idea, literal wording would be, yet in Jehovah, I will be exultant. I will be triumphantly joyful. I will be ecstatically happy. I will joy, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And there's the key. Because even though there's the certain failure of the world's comforts, there's also the reality of the eternal joy of God's salvation. And Habakkuk lets everything go. <clears throat> he holds on to nothing. There's nothing left to hold on to. And he says, Lord, I let it all go, and I choose to be joyful, even if I die, according to verse 16. Verse 15, even if I die, I am choosing to be joyful in you. And then he makes a statement of, of praise, and one that in a, a form of poetry, he is describing liberation, freedom, uh, lightness of foot due to joy, like one, one, one who's so happy he's skipping along and, and just can't contain himself. He's just so happy and so light of foot because of the joy, the physical uh, response that that joy produces. He says, the Lord God shall make my feet like hind's feet. Turn to Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 34 with me. David uses this exact same language. Second Samuel 22, verse 34. Remember that 2 Samuel 22 is a psalm that was written the day that the Lord delivered uh, David out of the hand of all his enemies, according to verse 1. And the, the, the joy that that brought into David's life when he was no longer being hunted by Saul and no longer being hunted by his enemies. We don't know exactly when this was written. Could even have been written later, much later in David's life, after he had been delivered from Absalom. That's possible as well. But he says in verse 34, He maketh my feet like hind's feet, or the feet of a deer, or a roe, or a doe, a female deer. So that, and he setteth me upon my high places. And drawing upon that same poetical style, Habakkuk says nearly the same thing. He will make my feet like hind's feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. Places of liberation, places of joy, a place of worship. Where you would go up to the high place and you would worship God before the founding of the temple was, was given. Uh, a place of, of freedom. A place to remember uh, the joy that God brings. And then he says to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. And the idea is this. There's the prophecy. Here, go sing it. It's already been written to the meter of Shigionot. You take this and you go sing it in the temple. And uh, you write it on parchment, so he that readeth may run it. Run that readeth it, and tell his neighbor. Take this, sing it out, sing it loud. Will anybody listen? Maybe, maybe not. That's not the part that matters. The part is that this has to be proclaimed. This is too good. This is too good to be kept to myself. Take this, my chief singer, and you sing it. And uh, it's possible that Habakkuk was a priest in the temple. It's possible he was a Levite of some kind. He obviously had something to do with music in the temple. Or he wouldn't have made this statement here in verse 19 of the last part of the chapter. But regardless of all that, this was a reality that he said, I want you to take this and I want you to sing it so that God's people can come to the same conclusions that I've come at, so that they can arrive at the same resolve that I have arrived at. But remember, this resolve cannot take place apart from chapter 2, verse 4, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We thank you, Lord, for this 
book of Habakkuk. We thank you, Lord, for the message of it. A very, uh, it's an impossible message for our flesh to receive. But, Lord, the Spirit of God that lives inside of us, for those of us who are saved, Lord, that Spirit of God says yes and amen to these things and yearns to make them a reality in our lives. And so I pray that you would help us to say no to that wicked, wicked flesh, that wretched man that we are in and of ourselves. Help us to say no to that man, Lord, that woman every day, and to say yes to the Spirit of God that wants to make these truths a consistent reality. We thank you, Lord, for your love and goodness. We pray that you'd help us to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. And uh, we ask that you be with pastors he preaches. Help us to receive the message there, Lord, that you would have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.